Let us pray together. Loving God, we ask that you would prepare a place in our hearts and in our souls that we might make a little more room for you, that we might make the crooked straight and the rough places plain. We ask that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts might make room for you and be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. I come to you this morning with this passage from Luke with more questions, I think, than I have answers. The Spirit and I have been wrestling with this, and I don't think we're done wrestling, so I hope to leave you with some questions to take home with you. Two years ago, when I first arrived in Advent, we were talking about passages in the Gospel of Luke, and I believe I said to you then that the first chapter of Luke opens kind of like a musical or an operetta. There's a few verses of prologue, almost like a Bertolt Brecht play, in which the gospel teller says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set all these facts right, because lots of people have tried to do it before, but I'm going to get it right for you. And then we launch right into a story that precedes this about this elderly couple. We capture them in the temple. The husband is like one of our ushers, although a a very holy and prescribed position in the temple at that time, going from a lineage way back, and he encounters an angel while he's setting up before worship in the morning. We read this passage on Thursday night, and Zechariah is startled and surprised and a little frightened by this angel Gabriel, the same one that will come a little later in the chapter, and tells him that he and his wife in their old age are going to have a baby. This is a story that Jewish folks at that time had heard before. We've heard it before because it happened to Abraham and Sarah many, many generations earlier. So there's a little bit of a resonance there of what has gone before. He's surprised and says, how can this be so? And the angel gets perhaps slightly indignant and says, I am Gabriel. I have made this clear. And because you have doubted, you will not be able to speak for the whole term of the pregnancy. I wondered on Thursday night as we sat in our circle there how that would go in modern families if when a mother gets pregnant, the expectant father remains silent the whole pregnancy. It has been seen as a punishment to Zechariah, but in many ways I think it was a gift to him to stop and be quiet and look around. And it's a good reminder for all of us in this season of Advent of what it means to just shut up and listen and look, and take in, and notice. The message of keeping quiet is a message that is not too often honored in American culture. For us to do that in this season is very countercultural. The musical continues on, and it goes over to a young woman, a young maid named Mary, who is perhaps just doing her regular chores outside, and Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to have a baby, and she says, how, how can this be so? She in, intimates that she is a virgin, 
And the angel says, do not fear. This will happen to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And she immediately breaks into a song. We're going to talk about that song in two weeks. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my salvation. So she goes on into this song and then we cut back to another scene where Mary meets Elizabeth, her elder relative, and tells her this news and the baby leaps, Elizabeth who's already pregnant, the baby John the Baptist who grew up to be a wild child, leaps in her womb. And then we go on to uh, this scene that we just heard about in which we hear about the birth of John the Baptist and his father, Zechariah, breaks into this song, which is both blessing and prophecy. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He came and set his people free. God set the power of salvation in the center of our lives and in the very house of David, his servant, just as God promised long ago through the preaching of the holy prophets. Deliverance from our enemies and every hateful hand, mercy to our fathers, as God remembers to do what God said he'd do. Promises going back generations, promises that the Jews had held on to for a long time, promises that they're all putting into this Messiah, promises and expectations. And then he goes on and blesses his child, who will be the prophet to this great Messiah, to go ahead and prepare his ways and to present the offer of salvation to God's people for the forgiveness of their sins. God's sunrise, as it says in the message translation, will break upon us, shining on those in darkness, those sitting in the shadow of death, then showing us the way, one foot at a time, down the path of peace. It struck me that this is a very heavy list of expectations to put on a child who has just been born. How will he do all this? There's so much here that Zechariah can't know, just as any parent can't know how a child would turn out, how our parents couldn't know how we would turn out. And we tend to place our hopes, our longings, our expectations, our fears on the next generation. Anyone who knows the history of the Jews up to the present time knows that many of these things did not happen. There wasn't complete deliverance. There wasn't necessarily favor all the time. The Messiah they were hoping for, a political king, didn't happen. But he's the Messiah we now know as Jesus, who actually wanted, I think, more of a revolution of people's hearts a repentance, a turning around is what repentance means of the ways in which they were going. And as we heard last week, that message is still powerful for us. Sitting here in the richest nation in the world in 2015, what are the things that we need to be saved from and to turn our hearts around on to go back? expectations of our people, of our children, of the next generation, being able to fulfill what we don't get to do in our lifetime. So I think about expectations, I realize that they tend to frame everything we do and they frame every new relationship we go into. I was talking to a friend this week who's just moved to New England from the Midwest. And she's encountering in her new job and new people 
how to have relationships in this community of faith she's entered into. And she said in one group, you know, I was just thinking we could drop in on each other's houses whenever we want to and get to know each other that way. She shared with me that she got a room full of blank stairs. And I said, as a Midwesterner who has lived in New England for 25 years, I'll tell you, they don't do that here. They don't drop in on people's houses. She said, I get that now. You know what it's like when you enter into a new work situation. You have hopes and expectations, some of which, if all the interviewing was very thorough and careful, might be realized, but others might not. You know what it's like when you get accepted to go into a school you've been longing for, go off to some new opportunity, that you have all sorts of expectations which eventually meet the reality. Some of those expectations continue on, but some get stopped in their tracks. I was reading that in technology, this is called the hype cycle. The first thing is you introduce a technology and people have all sorts of hope for it and there are inflated expectations. And then people start using the new technology and there's a trough of disillusionment. And then people sort of climb out of that on a slope of enlightenment, figuring out how things can work and how they won't work, how they will change things and how things will stay the same. And then they say we go onto a plateau of productivity, using this new technology to work with us. Any of you who bought a new computer or have been excited by the hype that goes into an iPhone know that you get excited about all the things this new technology will do, but eventually you find its limitations or how much it needs to be charged all the time, or how much a planned obsolescence is part of the marketing plan, where it won't work as effectively as you want to as the technology moves on. And so you learn to adapt into a slope of enlightenment and a plateau of productivity. I think it's true in our relationships as well. Sometimes we go in with great hopes about how things will work. Some people call that in a relationship the honeymoon period. And then you learn that you're not perfect and the other person's not perfect, that they bring all their expectations, which may or may not meet your expectations. They bring all their baggage as you bring your baggage. And you get into this trough of disillusionment. I'm not speaking personally, by the way. And then it goes into this slope of enlightenment and a plateau of productivity. If you're lucky and if you work hard, in that disillusionment. I think a lot of people ended up being disillusioned with Jesus in his time, and that's why the story ends the way it does on Good Friday. Because he didn't meet their hopes. And where you and I live actually is on this slope of enlightenment and plateau of productivity, to use these very technological phrases, of how we are going to mold the expectations of this Messiah and incorporate them into our lives so they actually work. So here are the questions I want to give you. As you go into this Advent season, as you head toward Christmas, you may have inflated expectations about how Christmas should be or what you want from it. And those may or may not be met. Or you may have some condition in your life, either work or school or relationship-wise, where you have some expectations that you hope will be fulfilled, but you're not sure if they're realistic. 
So the question I want us all to wrestle with is what is behind those expectations? Because I think if we can dig down a little deeper, we will be able to find the true value, the true thing that we're seeking, and be able to mold our expectations accordingly. In a good relationship, I think that core value is love. We realize that our expectations may not be met, but there is love, and that is what we are after. And so we work at ways of molding and re-triggering our expectations so that we can love more deeply and with more care, with more humility, and a little more effort. I believe in work relationships, it may be about the goal of the institution. Or in school, it may be about the goal of learning, of improving ourselves. And if we can get clear on those goals, that helps us reconfigure our expectations. And as one management coach I know says, once we get clear on our expectations, we then can make agreements about how they work. Now we light these candles in Advent to say that we have some deeper values of hope and love. And next week, joy, and the following week, peace. So I'd invite you to think about where you want to have a little more hope. As I looked at the news this week, and as I got a robocall on Wednesday or Thursday morning from the Cambridge uh, School Department saying that there was a heightened alert because of an anonymous threat of gun violence, I thought we as Americans and as Christians have a very reasonable expectation that we should have safe and secure neighborhoods and homes, that we should be able to be safe from our fellow citizens. It's a good expectation for which we have not figured out the solution, and we need a little more political will on it, frankly. And so I wonder what the value there is for a more perfect union for common humanity and dignity for what it really means to hold one another accountable to the best values and thereby retool the expectations. I tend to believe that in our culture we've lost a sense that we're all in this together, that we're all a part of a community in which we hold to certain ideals of a more perfect union for the health and life and liberty and pursuit of happiness. I wonder where us, we as Christians, where our values of hope and love and joy and peace enter into that as we discuss current events with our neighbors, as we talk to politicians, as we advocate for things that we feel are needed in this culture. So I invite you to think about what your expectations are, an expectation that you hold that's not being met or concerns you and dig down a little deeper and say, what is it I really value and want to see happen here? For the Messiah, I believe it was that love would reign in our hearts and would govern all our decisions, all our governments, all our ways of being. And for John, I think the deeper value was that people would actually listen to this guy who was to come after him. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, I believe they just wanted to do a good job to bring this new life into the world. 
And as we'll hear in two weeks, for the maiden, Marian, Mary, <laughs> she wanted to be the handmaiden of God, to help magnify God's presence in the world. May it be so with us. Amen.